As we open God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. And we ask that through your spirit this morning, you take that word and put it deep down into our hearts that we might begin to trust Jesus more and reflect him more in our lives. Uh, And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. When Rani and I were thinking about how to talk about going to Belgium, uh, we thought maybe we could talk about how much we loved Belgium, how much we love the food and the culture uh, and the people. Uh, maybe we'll get a bit more of that on Tuesday night. Or we thought maybe we could talk about how great the need is in Belgium, how the student group there would just love to have more ministry workers. But there's something lacking in that, right? I want, they want, why would you want to be involved in that? The simple fact of wanting something is not enough. Uh, Then Graham invited me to preach on Mark chapter 1, and I looked at the first verse, and I thought, well, there's your reason. That's why it's worth getting behind mission. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, literally the beginning of the good news of Jesus. Uh, As a church, uh, you're starting a new series today. You've called it, Who is This Man? Uh, And I think the first thing that Mark wants to tell us about this man is that he's good news. It's worth sharing about Jesus because he's good. Uh, And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. The Gospel of Mark is all about putting the goodness of Jesus on display for everyone to see. Uh, And that's what I want to do this morning as well. I don't want to talk about wants and needs. I want to talk to you about how good Jesus is. Because when we see how good Jesus is, that's when everything else falls into place. And so this morning, I have three ways this passage shows us that Jesus is good. Number one, Jesus shares our troubles and our burdens. Number two, Jesus resists the temptation to self-love. And three, Jesus is worth turning your life around for. And we'll look at each of those in turn. Uh, But to kick us off this morning, I thought I would share a story that I borrowed from another preacher. It's a bit cheesy, so bear with me, but I I think it's got a really important point to say. Uh, There's a man walking along, uh, and he falls into a hole, and for the life of him, he can't get back out. Uh, And while he's coming to terms with this fact, he sees a doctor walking past, uh, and he shouts out for help. uh, And the doctor stops, writes a prescription, throws it in the hole, and moves on. And the guy's like, ugh. Uh, And then a a priest walks past, and so he shouts out for help, uh, and the priest stops, prays a prayer for him, uh, and moves on. And he's like, ugh. Uh, And then he sees one of his friends walking by, uh, and he shouts out for help, and the friend stops, looks in the hole, and then jumps in. Uh, And the guy's like, "You're, you're an idiot. Now we're both in here. But his friend says, yeah, but now we can figure out how to get out of here together. Uh, And there's something very similar happening in our passage this morning. Uh, Mark begins with two quotes from Isaiah and Malachi, two quotes that look forward to the day when God would come and rescue his people. Uh, The people of Israel are, of course, dispersed across the world, and they live under the authority of a foreign power. Uh, And these verses look forward to the day when God would come and gather them again. And so when we read the start of Mark, We should have this incredible sense of expectation. God is coming to rescue his people. To quote John, After me comes one 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And so appropriately enough, John is calling the people to turn away from doing whatever it is they were up to, and he's calling them to live God's good way, to honor God, to love their neighbor, and to care for the foreigner in their midst. And John's message is simple. Uh, It is, in fact, our message. Turn to God, and he'll forgive what is past and bring you into his kingdom. Enter Jesus from Galilee. Uh, Jesus is, for all intents and purposes, just another man. There's nothing particularly noteworthy about him. He doesn't look particularly special. Uh, And he joins the queue with everyone else waiting to be baptized. But when John thrusts him under the water, we're treated to a moment of divine disclosure. The heavens break open. The spirit of God through whom he made the world descends like a dove. And a voice is heard, verse 11, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, when we think of the word son, we usually think of a biological son. Uh, My wife and I are having a son. True story, by the way. But when ancient people heard the phrase son of God, what they actually heard was ruler of the earth. Because for ancient peoples, rulers were seen as a source of divine authority. They were seen like God as a source of morality and law and blessing. And so they'd be called sons of God and sons of heaven. And that's what Mark is trying to tell us about Jesus. He's trying to tell us that Jesus is God's king. That when you look at Jesus, you see God. But did you notice... There's something a bit off in this picture. Uh, Jesus is supposedly the son of God, but he's in line to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. Jesus is in the wrong line. Uh, And this actually happens throughout the gospel. Uh, Jesus is always in the wrong line, hanging out with the wrong people, even to the point of being accused of doing the wrong thing. What is Jesus doing? Well, I think this is where that story is actually really helpful. It's not possible to love people from a distance. You can't love people by throwing prescriptions and prayers down a hole. Uh, When I was a student, I got Centrelink. It was genuinely great. It allowed me to study full-time and to have a roof over my head. But like most people, I really struggled to feel thankful for the support. And I think I struggled to feel thankful Because every time I went into Centrelink, they were behind a desk. They weren't really interested in me. They didn't want to know my problems. They just wanted to know that if I'd done my paperwork and met the requirements. It was sort of like trying to feel thankful to a vending machine. How different is the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't stay at a distance. He didn't sit at a desk or on his throne in heaven. Rather, he got down into the muck and mess of our life to share in our joys and struggles, even to the point of suffering our death on the cross. Why did he do it? Well, because like the friend in that story, Jesus doesn't want to fix us. He wants to be with us. Uh, Often we answer the question, why did Jesus die, with the answer to take the penalty for our sins. And that's true. But it's also a bit mechanical. Jesus died for us 
because he wants to be with us. Uh, in Revelation, Jesus says that he's knocking on the door. Why is Jesus knocking on the door? Because he wants to come in and eat with us. He wants to share life with us. And so why did Jesus get in the wrong line? Jesus got in the wrong line because he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. Uh, and just as Jesus wants to have a relationship with us, so he wants us to build relationships with each other. He wants us to get into each other's lives, to share each other's burdens, to suffer with each other, because this is where life is. This is where life is enjoyed in the thick of relationship. Uh, the writer that the Hebrews says, do not cease meeting together. Why does he say that? Because to cease meeting together is to begin to start living in the spiritual equivalent of a Centrelink office where all our relationships are formal, transactional, and without love. But Jesus wants more for us than this. He wants us to enjoy the fullness of life with him and the fullness of life with each other. Jesus wants us to jump in the hole, to get in the wrong line, to share life with each other in all the ups and downs until that day when Jesus returns and we get to enjoy that life with him. But, and I'm sure you know this, uh, it's not always easy to build that sort of connection. Uh, Rani and I spent the last six years or so living in and around Campsie. It's a beautiful, grungy, multicultural Sydney suburb. Uh, but in the last six months, we were down in Melbourne at the CMS Training College there, and we just, we really missed Campsie. And so when we got back, we walked down the main street, and I was like, Campsie. Uh, and we ate at one of my favorite restaurants, and I was like, you've done it again, Campsie. Uh, and then we went to the supermarket to do our shopping, and we were greeted by an aisle with absolutely no toilet paper. And I was like, Campsie. <laughs> there's nothing uh, in a pandemic that says, if you'll excuse the phrase, stuff you, I'm in this for myself, quite like an empty toilet paper aisle. <laughs> and I only raised that because that's actually the sort of attitude that Jesus is actually tempted to have in verses 12 and 13. Let's have a look. Uh, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels who were ministering to him. Uh, the combination of the number 40 uh, with wilderness and the angels connects this scene with the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the desert. Uh, God rescued his people through Moses out of Egypt and led them for 40 years through the desert by a fiery cloud, which the Israelites understood to be an angel. And it was during that time that they were tested, not in a mean and vindictive way, but because they were in the desert, they were not yet in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so they had to trust God's promise that he would safely bring them into the land. And something really similar is going on here. Uh, Jesus is in the desert, and because he's in the desert, he's cut off from the good things of life, food, water, shelter. Uh, and so he faces a test. He can trust that God will provide for him, or he can strike out on his own. 
And if you know this scene in Matthew and Luke, you'll know that they fill it out with a lot of content. Satan comes and using scripture, he tempts Jesus to use his powers as the son for himself. It's a really rich and powerful scene. Uh, But I think Mark's account also has a richness to it. But it's a richness that spreads out across the whole book. I think Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus experienced temptation not just in the wilderness, but throughout his entire life. And so about halfway through the book, we encounter this scene where for the first time, the disciples actually identify who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, And Jesus immediately tells them uh, that as the Son, he's actually going to give up his life. Uh, And Peter, one of the disciples, is like, oh man, you've got to be kidding me. You're the Son of God. Stuff that. Take the throne for yourself and enjoy being the king. And Jesus famously replies, get behind me, Satan. I think we usually think that's a bit of an overreaction, and so we struggle to not take it as a joke. Do you want some ice cream? Get behind me, Satan. I'm on a diet. But I think we really need to understand what Peter is saying to Jesus. Peter's effectively saying, Jesus, mate, you don't need to die for the saints out at Robertson. You don't need to care about the lost in Belgium. You're the king, the son of God. You don't need to look out for anyone but yourself. Uh, And there's another temptation scene at the end of the book. This time, it's a really sad one. Uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and this is it. This is the last opportunity for Jesus to turn tail and run. Uh, And Jesus tries to encourage the disciples to stand with him. But while Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done, the disciples hightail it out of the garden, putting self-interest well ahead of their loyalty to Jesus. So what is the good thing that Jesus does in these verses? Jesus resists the temptation to self-love. And this is our second point this morning. Jesus resists the temptation to throw us all under the wheel by abandoning the cross. What does that mean? Well, actually, it means quite a lot. It means that the hunger and thirst that Jesus experienced in the desert, he experienced for you. Uh, It means the comfort and glory that Jesus abandoned when he refused to claim the throne. He abandoned that for you. It means the distress and the tears of blood that Jesus wept in the garden. He wept those tears for you. Every struggle of every day was a struggle that Jesus endured for you. So what does that mean for us? What does Jesus ask of us in return? Well, the same thing he asked his disciples in the garden. Watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. Don't abandon me, but stand with me in the hour of temptation. And what is temptation? It's the temptation to say, stuff you to Jesus and stuff you to your fellow man. It's the temptation when suffering comes to abandon each other, to stop gathering. It's the temptation when suffering comes to turn inwards, to forget about mission. 
It's the temptation when suffering comes to think that the only good there is to do is good for yourself. And Jesus says, in this hour, when it feels like you're cut off from the good things of life, in this hour, put your hands together and pray, not what I will, but what you will. In that hour, let God's will be your guide. In that hour, let God's will be your will. But what if we make a mistake? What if we head down the wrong path? A few months ago, Arani and I were coming back from Melbourne and heading to a holiday on the south coast. Uh, And we actually cut through the southern highlands on the way, dodging potholes in our little white polo. And about halfway through the highlands, my phone ran out of battery. Uh, But we've got this old little navman in the car, so we turned it on and kept on driving. And just as we thought we were reaching our destination, the navman turned us onto this tiny little road and confidently told us to go straight ahead. And so we were driving along, suddenly the road becomes a dirt road. We're like, hmm. And we're driving along, and then we drive past a national park sign. I'm like, that's weird. And then we drive past a no-through road sign. And I thought, no, I don't care what it says. The navman is wrong. I'm turning around. Uh, and I think that's actually a good little picture of repentance. Uh, and this is our third point. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus returns from the wilderness and says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, I think we often associate repentance with turning away from good things, eating chocolate, watching a movie, having a day off. Uh, re- repentance is actually the opposite of that. Repentance is when you realize that you're going the wrong way And so you turn around and go the other way. Uh, Over the last year or so, Rani and I have been doing a lot of reading around secularism. Uh, Belgium is, of course, a secular country. And I thought when I started reading about secularism that I'd be reading about Europe. But the more I read, the more I realized I wasn't reading about Europe. I was reading about myself. Because secularism, it turns out, isn't just about not believing in God. Secularism is all about an effect and our response to that effect. Uh, The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls it the nova effect. Uh, A nova is, of course, when a star explodes and spreads itself out over a wide area. Uh, And Taylor says the Nova effect is what happened 300 to 400 years ago when the opportunities of who we could be, what we could do, and where we could go just exploded. Suddenly we went from living and dying in the village we were born in to basically doing whatever we want, when we want, where we want. Sounds great, right? But what often happens, and I think we all experience this to some degree, what often happens is one of three things. One, because there's so many options, our behavior becomes serial. We're always moving on to the next thing and we never really stop to enjoy anything properly. Or two, because there's so many options, we actually try to spread out our identity to cover a broad range of options. We try to be available to more than one thing at the same time. 
But as we stretch ourselves out, our lives become very thin. We begin to lack depth. Or three, because there's so many options of who we could be and what we could do, we get overwhelmed by the burden of choice. We can't bring ourselves to pick that option because we know if we pick that option, then we can't choose that one. Uh, and so we actually freeze up. And when we're caught in one of these patterns, when we spread out or freeze up or move on too quickly, we never really connect with the things we're trying to enjoy because we never really commit to them. And because we never really commit to them, our lives become a bit nothing. Uh, and as a result, we become a bit nothing as well. And what's Jesus' word when we start to head down this path? Well, it's down there in verse 15. Repent. You're going in the wrong direction. Turn around before it's too late. <clears throat> but there's more here, right? Jesus doesn't just say, repent. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom? Well, it's many things. But if we were to explain it in terms we've been talking about, you could say, the kingdom of God is a commitment to the very best things. Uh, one of the things that muddles us up in our culture is that we've taken the biblical idea of equality and we've applied it to absolutely everything, not just my value as a human, but my choices and decisions as well. But I think we know deep down in our hearts that not everything is equal. Some things are better than other things. Connection is better than disconnection. Self-giving love is better than self-love. Commitment is better than possibility. In short, Jesus' way is better than our way. And in part, that's what it means when we say that Jesus is the Son of God. We mean that when we see Jesus, we see in him the very best way to live. We see God's way to live. And to repent is to pursue that path the way that we see in Jesus. But Jesus doesn't simply stand before us as a vision. Rather, in his goodness and love, he stoops down and lifts us up to enjoy that goodness. That's what the cross is all about. That's what mission is all about. God doesn't simply watch us walking down the wrong path. No, God picks us up, turns us around, and brings us home. Let's give thanks to Jesus for his work for us. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you became one of us, that you suffered with us, and that you died on the cross for us, that we might be brought into your kingdom. Father, we pray that this, Jesus, we pray uh, that this morning that you would that your spirit would be amongst us to transform us more and more into the image of your son, that we might draw closer to each other even as we draw closer to you. Uh, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.